0: you're listening to the perch pod from perch perspectives hello listeners and welcome to another episode of the perch pod as usual i'm your host i'm jacob shapiro i'm also the founder and chief strategist of perch perspectives which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm if you haven't checked us out online to learn more about the geopolitical risk services we offer uh, to explore some of the newsletters that we do please do so at perchperspectives.com you can also email us at info at if you want more information or just to chat uh, joining us on the podcast today is dr maria shagana she is a postdoctoral fellow at the center for eastern european studies at the university of zurich um, i've been following her work for a number of years now uh, and i i tweeted at her on twitter uh, and asked her to come on the podcast and she said yes Um, So thanks so much, Maria, for for making some time. I thought this was a really, really excellent conversation about a fairly technical topic that... I don't think it's enough coverage in, in English language media and certainly doesn't get nuanced coverage in English language media. And I think that at the end of this, not only will you know a little bit more about Nord Stream 2, but you'll understand what's happening right now in US German relations, uh, what's happening in Ukrainian Russia relations and why some of this matters so much And in general. So without further ado, thanks, Maria, for coming on. Listeners, thanks for joining us and being along with us on this ride. And we'll see you out there. Cheers. Uh, Maria, thank you so much for joining us and for continuing this tradition of me um, trying to get people on Twitter to respond to my messages and then come on the podcast. It's nice to have you here.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Look, you're an expert on a lot of different things. And we're going to talk about Nord Stream 2, which is a very technical topic. Um, But so let's start with maybe it's an easy question. Maybe it's so easy that it's hard. Um, Tell the listeners who don't know what is Nord Stream 2 just at a very basic level. What are we talking about here?
1: The Nord Stream 2 pipeline is a very controversial topic, but in technical terms, it's a second pipeline that was launched in 2015 to connect Russian market to the German market specifically, and then from there, distribute the market to the EU customers, and what it does basically, it diversifies from the Ukrainian gas transportation system. So the, this new pipeline is about to ship 55 billion cubic meters of natural gas to German Lubmin, a port in the northern part of Germany. And the, the reason we see so much discussion and politicized debate is that it abandons the Ukrainian transportation system, which has been a traditional route to the European customers. And in light of the events between Ukraine and Russia, this causes a security situation for Ukraine.
0: Help us situate this in in time and in chronology. So where does the discussions about Nord Stream 2 happen in relation to the Ukrainian revolution 2014-ish? Was this something that Russia and Gazprom had been thinking about for a long time already? Um, Was it moved forward by what happened in Ukraine? Is it completely independent of that? How do we think about the timing of all this?
1: Uh, Russia's plans to diversify from Ukraine to circumvent Ukraine as a transit country should be placed in a broader context. It's a historical legacy that after the demise of the Soviet Union, the Russian authorities and Gazprom as the main monopoly uh, of the gas sector in Russia, have been uh, thinking about uh, having a direct access to European customers. So this is a not a new pipeline in this with this objective. There have been many more and the, the Nord Stream 1 pipeline is already there. So it does exactly the same. It diversifies from Ukraine. But the timing of the launch of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is in 2015 and as we know the Euromaidan revolution happened in 2014 so this is a very sensitive timing for Ukraine and it actually counters the European sanctions policy which states to increase costs for Russia to conduct its Ukraine policy, its aggressive policy towards Ukraine. So we see this uh, counterproductive uh, project in this sense that it goes against the stated EU sanctions policy. And then later we can talk about the decarbonization, which also counters uh, what the EU stated.
0: Great. And then how just how dependent is Well, two two questions here. How dependent is the European Union as a whole on Russian natural gas? And then how dependent in particular is Germany on Russian natural gas? Are there alternatives that are just more expensive? Is it really this is the only game in town? Um, Just how serious is that dependency?
1: Right. We should uh, distinguish between reliance and dependency. So while Russia is dependent on European gas market, those are the primary customers for Russia. Russia's pivot to Asia, in particular to China, has not been that successful or still in its emergency. Uh European Union is reliant on Russian gas, but it's not dependent. There are other suppliers, such as Norway, Algeria. Also, LNG has shaped the European gas market as any other gas markets in particular. So, EU has much more leeway than Russia does. Whereas the discussion, as we often see in media, is very black and white that uh, European Union is much more dependent on Russian gas and vice versa. So the questions you asked, uh, European Union has been consistently more or less dependent on Russian gas, one third of its uh, needs. So 30% is supplied from the Russian sources. Germany is more dependent on Russian gas, uh, and with Nord Stream 2, it will in fact become a European gas hub. 60% of all gas will be concentrated in Germany. So that makes uh, uh, this project for Berlin in particularly attractive as Germany will be the key country to distribute gas to other countries, Czech Republic in particular, which was previously supplied by Ukraine. So we'll see the redistribution of gas flows in Germany will be the key country. But there is also a historical component to it that Germany, uh, since uh, the Cold War, has established this close relationship with, uh, back then, the Soviet Union. So this gas flow has been uh, going towards Germany since the 70s, uh, 80s. And this was part of the so-called Ostpolitik Uh, the new eastern policy established under Willy Brandt, Chancellor, to increase this economic relationship. And gas was this bridge that connected the two countries.
0: Yeah, and and that gets us right to the issues that that, that are the whole reason I wanted to talk to you today, because um, Nord Stream 2 has been a big problem in US-German relations Uh, since 2015, since they started talking about it. And I think that Germany's relationship with the Soviet Union and then Russia afterwards has also been a stumbling block for U.S.-German relations, although apparently it's gotten more serious in recent years. Um, How do you... I guess the first question there is, obviously the U.S.-German relationship deteriorated under the Trump administration. And a lot of that was just because President Trump is who he is. He wasn't very nice to Angela Merkel when she visited... Um, He kept on telling that the Germans needed to pay for all the things that the Americans did for them over the years. I mean, any country that hears that is going to is going to be skeptical. Um, But it sounds to me like there was there were some structural forces that were going to cause problems in U.S. German relations anyway, surrounding Nord Stream 2. Um, So before we get to the agreement that Biden and Merkel seemed to hash out recently, where were U.S. German relations before and how bad do you think things actually got? Was this a simple disagreement between two allies? Or do you think that Germany, uh, do you think that the U.S. opposition to Nord Stream Two, particularly under Trump, was actually threatening the basis of the U.S.-Germany relationship?
1: Right. So these disagreements again have this historical baggage, if you want. So the disagreements about whether Russia or back the Soviet Union can use energy as a weapon have divided the allies since the Siberian pipeline in the 80s and this is something the current secretary blinken has written extensively about so this is the the those are the disagreements that have been continuing for almost four decades they haven't been resolved and this is again the another illustration that we cannot reconcile Different perceptions of Russia, whether, um, uh, sorry, Uh, what are the red lines for Russia to cross? Where can we impose sanctions? Uh, What is uh, economic interdependence? Whether it leads to productive uh, policy towards Russia or whether it's counterproductive? So those are the elements uh, that been there for a long time haven't been resolved, and with the Trump administration, uh, it became more uh, not aggressive. Sorry, I have to rephrase it. <laughs> uh, it became more chaotic in how to solve it. Trump was actually against Nord Stream two, mm-hmm. and uh, this caused the the rift in transatlantic relationship. And the way it was done actually uh, consolidated opinion in Germany that extraterritorial sanctions is a legal tour, uh, tool, and uh, this sort of blatant uh, blaming uh, Germany on perhaps you know uh, good things that Germany should have changed. This undiplomatic way it has been done has actually uh, caused more tensions between the allies, and it hasn't done any good for that matter. It's a legitimate question whether Germany's Russia policy, deeply rooted in this Ostpolitik, should continue. Whether this, uh, in German it's called Wandel, Handel, meaning change through trade, through cooperation, is still there. Whether we just see economic cooperation without change. This raises big questions since 2014, and since then, we have seen many more transgressions when it comes to Navalny uh, attacks in Germany itself and cyber attacks, you name it, the list is very long. So it does raise a very important question whether... Germany's Russia policy is still up to date, still in reality check with what's happening within Russia and with its foreign policy.
0: Yeah, so we'll get to that in, in a few moments, um, but let's just fast forward now a little bit forward to um, to the deal apparently that Biden and Merkel were able to make. I was struck, you, you recently wrote an article, and we'll link to it um, in the description in the German Institute for International Security Affairs, and you talked about how Um, Ukraine was caught completely off guard by Biden and Merkel coming to some kind of agreement about Nord Stream 2. So sort of a two part question here. Can you just talk a little bit about what Biden and Merkel agreed to? And then I'd love to know, was it surprising to you or are the Ukrainians sort of uh, were they not keeping up on things if they were surprised by this development?
1: Right, so unlike the Trump administration, the Biden administration took a very different approach, more diplomacy going forward, and meaning that extraterritorial sanctions is an option of last resort. So this is the foundation that has helped to shape this deal, whether it's ideal, perfect, we can discuss in a moment, but this is the fundamental uh, basis that we should have in mind when we think about this deal. Uh, The deal can be uh, roughly divided in three parts. Um, It uh, assures that the U.S. and Germany would impose sanctions should Russia use energy as a weapon or further transgressions in Ukraine, uh, showing aggressive policy towards its neighbor uh, there are questions uh, or uncertainties, in fact, how it could be implemented, whether Germany and the US has actually agreed on what constitutes uh, use of energy as a coercive weapon when it comes to Russia. I'm not sure this has been in any case resolved. Again, we're talking about this historical disagreements that are still there. Second part uh, says that... Um, washington and berlin uh, will establish a so-called climate and energy partnership and here the main burden to deliver on various measures that i included here will be on berlin berlin uh, has said that we'll invest 175 million as a first installment to this fund which is expected to grow to 1 billion with the attraction of private clients, Uh, Berlin will appoint a special energy envoy uh, to shape the much closer energy relationship between Ukraine and Germany, Uh, has also uh, 70 million allocated to this person. Um, and the the third uh, package, uh, third part of this uh, deal, is the decarbonization. Basically, taking a long term perspective of this very politicized project, saying that in the long term we can mitigate the burden that comes or the threats that come with Nord Stream Two for Ukraine by leveraging Ukraine's position in the decarbonization game. Because decarbonization is very capital-intensive, it's very technology-driven, something that Ukraine doesn't have, and the two allies are committed, at least on paper, to help its partner to, to be a bit ahead of the game, given that Russia is not also lagging behind, it would be in Ukraine's interest to be there. From the Ukrainian side, there are many uncertainties and the country that is currently at war and has underlined this position uh, many times in outright interviews to various uh, American newspapers as well, this is not the deal that Ukraine is happy with. And the reason is that it doesn't provide security guarantees. So there's been a shift in narrative in Ukraine itself. From economic uh, losses up to three billion annually, um, three billion dollars annually, Ukraine can lose due to Nord Stream Two. But for the past at least six months, this narrative has been uh, heavily shifted to security concerns. And the Ukrainian narrative is that with launch of Nord Stream Two, Russia will be free to launch a full-scale war in Ukraine, something that Germany does not buy entirely. Some of the German officials uh, said that that's a speculation at the time being. We cannot be certain that this will go ahead. But what we can see with the deal is that some of the security aspects are there. But there are no concrete implementation mechanisms. And this is what Ukraine is not happy with. And there are more insecurities that it has been left behind or unheard of. Now, the second question you ask, whether Ukraine has been uh, caught off guard with the deal. um, For the time being, we can say that uh, Ukraine uh, has been very certain... Uh, in February, that sanctions from the U.S. will stop the pipeline. In my understanding, this has been a strategic miscalculation of the Biden's policy, because the the strategy from the Ukrainian government was banking on the U.S. sanctions alone. There was no plan B to elaborate uh, what will happen if Nord Stream 2 is launched and the the only contingency plans that we've seen has been over the past months and this is quite belatedly to counter something a policy that Russia has been conducting since 80s basically
0: is there is there really a whole lot Ukraine can do i mean is is it a is it an issue of not having developed a plan b or is it really just that there isn't a plan b and ukraine doesn't have a lot of options they're stuck between powers that are more powerful than they are. Ukraine has its own internal political dysfunction. It doesn't, you know, the idea that you're going to get the United States to go along with you, I mean, maybe you can do some lobbying and things like that. But ultimately, um, none of the decisions that are going to be made that are going to affect Ukraine here are going to take place in Kiev, no matter what you do. Am I being a little too cynical there? Or are there things that Ukraine could have done to shape this process in a better way?
1: I think the problem was uh, was the Ukrainian side. The way I see it is unwillingness to accept that the negotiations will take place. The sheer fact that negotiations is something that Biden and Merkel prefers uh, versus extraterritorial sanctions is something that in Ukraine has been discarded. So the, the, the sheer willingness to come to the negotiating table has been delayed. So again, banking on US sanctions has been plan A, and it's still there, but now this plan A is basically to expand the room for maneuver for plan B. And there are options what Ukraine uh, can do and has been doing. First of all, uh, we need to acknowledge that for now, there is a willingness from Washington and Berlin to listen to Ukraine and to engage Ukraine. It hasn't done properly with this deal that has been announced recently, but there is a desire to listen to Ukraine to take on board the, the security concerns and the, the economic uh, obligations as well. The main question here is the the bargaining game, whether the stakes are too high and whether, you know, linking, for example, Nord Stream 2 to Ukraine's membership in NATO or the occupation of Crimea is something intangible. So, again, this is a question of how high uh, you are prepared to raise your stakes and how tangible they are. But. Uh, In in technical terms, what Ukraine can do and has been already doing. So we know that when the deal was announced, uh, the Ukrainian uh, foreign ministry teamed up with the Polish counterpart uh, announced the the statement basically saying that um, they are not happy uh, with the deal. It doesn't include hard security guarantees and that Ukraine is... uh, using the EU-Ukraine Association Agreement and basically demanding from the EU the same um, treatment attitude as compliance with the, the articles within this association agreement. So it refers to article like 274, which talks about uh, securities, uh, energy securities and how to cooperate collaborate on infrastructure developments. So in this case, Ukraine is asking from the EU to be counterpart, not just for Ukraine to be a rule taker. Um, it, it, it asks for the equal footing in this association agreement. The the, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> the, the other strategy that Ukraine um, is now banking on is... Uh, to use market instruments. Um, as we know, in 2019, Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian Naftogaz and Russian Gazprom signed the gas uh, transit agreement, uh, and that was basically contingent on the condition that Ukraine applies with the third energy package, which has uh, unbundling third-party access and uh, transport tariffs. Ukraine applied with these conditions, and now it wants Russia to comply with this. And this is the next big question mark in the Nord Stream 2 story. But now Ukraine is pushing, is lobbying that Gazprom also complies with the EU's own rules. And EU should be more rigorous in applying its own energy market rules to third parties like Russia. Ukraine has been also raising an issue that Russia monopolizes gas flows from Central Asia, something that, given EU's energy strategy, EU should be interested in diversifying routes uh, through which gas comes to the EU, and Central gas, uh, Central Asian gas is, is another source for that matter. So there are various, not just political, uh, ways in which uh, Ukraine can push, but there's been banking so far on, on these regulatory terms. There are also litigation cases prepared. But it, to me, again, it comes down to the, the uh, time frame in whether Berlin and Washington are ready to listen to Ukraine and to accept these terms and to uh, take them on board. So far, there is such a willingness to do so.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I want to go back to what you talked about with the EU's third energy package and where the EU um, deals with this in general. But before we leave Ukraine, I just thought you said one really, really important thing that I wanted to underline, which was that Ukraine is insisting that once Nord Stream 2 is is operational, um, that it is vulnerable to a full scale invasion from Russia. Um, Is that true? Is that is that something the Ukrainians are saying to try and increase the urgency of the situation and to underscore how existential this is to their national security? Because um, I have to admit, I don't see it. And I've, I've, we've had some other Russian analysts on this podcast before, and they've basically thrown up their hands and been like, "We're, we're not going to invade Ukraine. Like, we're not going to tolerate anti-Russia forces in Ukraine. There are certain red lines that if you cross, we're going to have to deal with. But like, we're not just like Nord Stream two. It's not part of this." Um, this is something that Ukraine is using to try and get more political um, support in Western capitals from. It doesn't reflect reality. and I, it doesn't seem to me that the Russians um, have the appetite to do everything that would a full-scale invasion of Ukraine um, would entail. So just what, what is what do you think of that? Is that an unrealistic fear that Ukraine is having? or is that something that we should take the Ukrainians more seriously? and maybe i'm i'm uh, I'm being too naive about what Moscow's real intentions are?
1: Uh, right, so this question is indeed a bit um provocative, and the, the German ambassador to Ukraine uh in the Ukrainian media reports called it the speculation, basically yeah, raising the question whether this is something that will happen. Um you you need to answer this question, you need to understand the situation, the the mood in Ukraine. Since 2014. Any relations with Russia has been very black and white, basically black for that matter. So uh, there are no positives or very little for for that. So anything that also involves energy or something very strategic is uh, raising alarms for Ukrainian officials and uh, There's been this sort of securitization of the energy deals as well, as we've seen President Zelensky, Ukrainian president, also raised that Nord Stream 2 should be now discussed in the Normandy format, which is actually for the settlement of the Donbass situation in eastern Ukraine. so if you listen to the Ukrainian officials, they've been raising this uh, alarm, this concern for a very long time. So they called it existential crisis openly in many Western newspapers, including uh, but again, uh, if you think rationally, and not every state acts rationally, but we know with Crimea, but rationally, Russia should not have incentives because the uh, to uphold uh, to to sustain Crimea is already costly. To sustain Donbas and Luhansk. Uh, is also proven to be costly. And even there, Russia is not ready to fully annex those territories. It's it's interested in keeping them as a lever uh, to, to manipulate where Ukraine is heading towards the EU or NATO for that matter. So rationally, we could say that there are no incentives. Also rationally, we can say that Crimean incident uh, will not take place because there is no other Crimea for that matter. There is no other peninsula or territory in Ukraine that Russia has been so attached to. Uh, at the same time, Russia likes to flex his muscles and as we've seen uh, with uh, the deployment of troops on the Ukrainian borders, that does cause alarm. And we have still s- seen in Ukrainian and Russian media speculating what that was for whether it was to uh to force the meeting between biden and putin um i would say that for now um those are um not speculation i don't want to say speculation but something that ukraine uh, the country that borders with russia and the country that is in war with russia is taking it seriously whether You know that makes full sense. This is only the future can tell us.
0: Yeah, and it's it's easy for us who are not in Kiev to say that. And I understand that you know it's a legitimate fear for for the Ukrainians to have to deal with that. But it seems it seems less likely you're going to convince people in Berlin or Washington or anywhere else that that's an existential threat because, as you said, there's just no there's just no rational incentive for Russia to do it. All right. Well, I'm glad I'm not crazy about that. Going back to what you were talking about the EU. Uh, so I didn't, I haven't actually asked you about the EU yet. And it seems to me that I don't quite understand. So the EU has to approve whatever Germany is going to deal with Russia. And then I also, you mentioned the EU's third energy package. Um, I was wondering what the status of that is and how the outcome of that debate is going to affect Russian and German energy strategies going forward. So it's a broad question. Take it in whatever direction you want.
1: Yeah. I'll start with the EU third energy package because this is the The big question mark when it comes to Nord Stream 2 story, uh, because after certification, and this is another (laughs) question mark, um, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline will have to comply with these three requirements that are included in this third energy package or gas directive. This gas directive was uh, first implemented in 2009 and then amended in 2019 and basically the strategy was to diversify uh, supply routes uh, to the EU, also to minimize this vulnerability. And the strategy was largely shaped by the previous Ukrainian-Russian gas disputes in 2006 and 2009. So this is a very telling story that the same yeah, disputes are beginning to shape how the EU energy rules will be applied. So in 2019, uh, the the gas directive was amended and was applied to offshore pipelines from third countries, meaning that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline will have to comply with it. The the US sanctions have shaped the way um, Nord Stream 2 or Gazprom will now have to comply with EU energy rules in that way that Gazprom had a derogation, meaning that it was basically exempt from the EU energy rules and contingent on the fact that the pipeline will have to be finished by May 2019. We know that didn't happen uh, for for various reasons, but also due to uh, US sanctions as well. So that delayed it. And now Gazprom is uh, filing three uh, court suits uh, in German courts and EU courts to challenge this EU directive. And basically, it comes down that from the Russian point of view. The financial investment decision was the, this final cutoff point, which was obviously before the directive was implemented, meaning that the Nord Stream 2 should be exempt from this. Mm-hmm. From the uh, European point of view, the, the final decision is when the construction is finished. And we know that for as of now, it's only 99% complete. So, this litigation battle can take a while, and uh, the it's still a big unknown. Uh, well, strictly speaking, the EU should obviously apply, apply those EU energy rules. And the recent decision that we obtained from the EU court on the OPAL... Um, um, Another pipeline linked to Nord Stream 1, which basically says that the principle of solidarity in the energy uh, sector should uh, mitigate all security concerns from all EU member states. Mm. So it's not just a political concept, it's a legal concept and all security concerns from all EU member states, and here Poland is the one, (laughs) the key to think about, should be taken into account. So this is a a big story to to think about in the future because it will take uh, quite some time. But for now, uh, the, the next decision to expect is Gazprom also filed a court case with the German court in Dusseldorf and that decision, uh, is expected in August 25. And this is about whether Nord Stream 2 AG, which is the Swiss registered company, can act as an international transportation system operator. Something that could potentially allow Gazprom to bypass the EU third energy package.
0: Yeah, one of the things I thought was most interesting in one of your more, more recent articles was that, um, you know, obviously for the last, I don't know, decade or so, maybe that's a little long, but for the last five five or six years, gas prices in Europe have been relatively low. And they're not right now. They've gone up something like five times or six times, and it doesn't look like they're going to go down anytime soon, which creates a whole new urgency around these questions. All the stuff you just talked about, certification and legal cases and this, that, and the other thing, it seems like that's going to take more six to eight months to resolve. And in your paper, you talked about how it seems like a lot of these actors uh, are basically acting as if Nord Stream 2 is going to come online this year. Um, and so maybe that's going to create the price for higher gas prices soon. Um, so is that something that you're worried about? Is, this, is, is the current spike in gas prices just the beginning and things are going to go up a lot more? Do you think that maybe we get to a place where Nord Stream 2 is technically operational, but all the legal stuff still has to be worked out on the back end, and we'll just start generating paper in bureaucracies. Um, what, What do you think the future is there going forward?
1: Right, you're absolutely right. So this is a direct link from the legal discussion that we just had to the market situation. Basically, Gazprom has always supplied cheap gas to the EU and it preferred this market share strategy that it preferred to have this about 30% share in the European gas markets, even though the prices could be low, it preferred to have this strategy now we see the switch uh, in its strategy that it's not supplying any gas to the EU. And that makes all traders very worried. As you said, the, the gas prices in the EU are at 13-year high. And today was the news word that it's at 500 uh, per billion cubic meters. This is astonishingly high if you compare it to the previous years before COVID and COVID only dampened the the prices. Um, And the other problem is that the, the gas storage facilities in Europe are also very low. It's at about 55% versus in normal years, it's about 80 So the summer period is used to pump gas into the gas storage facilities. And now we have the major supplier Gazprom is refusing to, to pump or to use the situation where it can cash in and it refuses to, to do so. And in this situation, there are speculations that Gazprom is using this very tight gas market to exercise pressure on German regulator that is about to issue its decision. As I mentioned, whether Nord Stream 2 AG, the Swiss entity, can operate as this independent uh, uh, transmission system operator and to speed up all EU clearance when it comes to the EU third uh, energy package. So this is one side of the story. There are market elements to that, that uh, cold month uh, from February to May have caused that too, also high margins in Asia, diverted the gas to Asia. So Novatec, for example, shipped a lot to Asia. So there are some market elements to the story. I don't want to boil it down to political story only, but um, discussed with some traders, they agree that there the are true elements to the story that Gazprom is using this type of gas market to, to exercise the pressure.
0: Um, hypothetical question. Do you think that the spike in gas prices um, affected Germany's desire for some kind of deal um, to to move forward with Nord Stream 2 that made it softer towards Russia on Nord Stream 2? Or do you think that this was going to be Russian strategy anyway? I guess I'm asking a what if question that if gas prices had stayed where they were, say in 2018, do you think Germany would have taken a harder line with Russia on Nord Stream 2? Or are higher gas prices basically forcing Germany's hand and making it a much more urgent task to get this understanding with the United States and to get a compromise going so that the gas is flowing.
1: Uh, In my understanding, Germany didn't change its position on Russia's policy at all. It has been soft in terms of it preferred this dialogue, this economic cooperation as this uh, safeguard to avoid any conflict. It doesn't take Ukraine's side of the story. So this policy hasn't been changed in that sense. I'm not sure to what extent gas prices really have even softened German approach. To me, it's more or less the same. Uh, Even the opposite, uh, I would say that to a certain extent, uh, Merkel, uh, the German chancellor, has taken into account Ukrainian concerns. But again, it all comes down to the implementation to harder security guarantees. But if we observe the German attitude towards the Nord Stream 2 since 2015-19, the major time points here, it has always said that it's a commercial project. And now with this deal, we can see some security elements, some acknowledgements that the the pipeline is in fact, uh, geo-economic at least, that Russia is using this line to diversify from Ukraine.
0: Mm -hmm. That makes sense. you mentioned the crazy polls. Let's talk about the crazy polls. I, I say they're crazy because on the one hand, they want to declare what looks like political war on the European Union every other day. And then on the other hand, it feels like the European Union is their best chance for actually getting an energy strategy that works in Poland's interest vis-a-vis Russia. Um, so I wanted to ask you what the effect of an operational Nord Stream 2 is on Eastern Europe's energy strategy in particular, but obviously Poland is the big one there because... You know, the Baltic pipeline, new LNG terminal terminals that they're, that they're trying to build. There's the three C's, um, you know, gas infrastructure as well. All of that kind of wrapped up in there. Um, so help us understand where the rest of Eastern Europe is looking at the situation and to what extent they have any influence over the situation at all.
1: Right. So as I mentioned, together with Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, we'll see the rediversification of gas flow, meaning that Central Eastern Europe will be dependent on shipping from Germany. And this is this major change in gas flows that causes these countries like Ukraine and Poland to be very insecure. So this divide in, uh, you know, East and West axis that we've seen throughout history is basically from uh, 70s, uh, 80s when the first shipment was gone is something that will, will change the way also prices will be shaped because it will be more expensive for countries like Ukraine to get gas now from Europe directly. So this will change. Some countries like Lithuania, we know, and Poland, including, uh, have been more proactive in how to mitigate dependency on Russian gas, this historical dependency. And for example, Lithuania, with the construction of LNG terminal, has decreased its dependency from 100 to 50, which is astonishing if you think about it, something that the Ukraine could you know, take a, a page from, from the strategies book. Um, You mentioned also 3C's initiative, this is also an important initiative backed by the U.S. government, actually by Trump administration. Um, It didn't have a lot of uh, policies coming out, but in its essence, it's a good policy in terms of, again, mitigating this historical uh, dependencies in infrastructure and creating the so-called north-south axis that uh, we know that historically gas has been flown from east to west uh, and this is this historical legacy now the three seas initiative with the construction of interconnectors on the eastern European borders with the construction of LNG terminals can break it down and create the vertical north-south axis that will help to make gas market even fluider, even more flexible. And again, this is something that Ukraine also should look up to and become more active as a member so far it's not a member, but maybe collaborate more closely. And actually, the deal that we've been talking about, the US-Germany deal specifically mentions this initiative as well. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, You've mentioned decarbonization a couple times, and it seems that one of the main, well, I don't know if it's one of the main planks of the deal, but one of the the planks of the deal that both Germany and the U.S. are, are, from a PR standpoint, are really talking up is this idea that they're going to fund Ukraine's transition to being a more renewable-based economy, a green economy, um, go for hydrogen instead of natural gas, all these other sorts of things. could be as much as a billion dollars of investment when you put it all together for the record, I'd love if we invested some billions of dollars in dealing with climate change and renewables in the U.S., but let's let's not go down that rabbit hole right now. Um, but I wanted to ask, so what is, what is Ukraine's capacity to be a renewable energy sort of power? How easy is it to transition from, say, natural gas to hydrogen? Is that something Ukraine could do and in some ways have a competitive advantage with Europe if it wanted to make that transition? Is there is there an outcome here where forcing Ukraine to decarbonize or or become more independent of Russian natural gas? Yes, it will be very, very painful and very scary in the short term. But 10 years from now, Ukraine will be very thankful to have done it. Is that realistic at all? Or is all of this stuff just pie in the sky and it doesn't mean anything and there's no chance um, for Ukraine to, to decarbonize in that way or be a sort of green energy investment hub the way that Germany and the U.S. are trying to, to talk it up?
1: Right. Um, the, this third component, this decarbonisation, to me, is a crucial one, actually, because it's a long-term strategy that needs to be taken into account. If a country bases its economy, economic model on gas transit fees, and in by 2030, after 2050 in particular, gas will be largely phased out, it poses a question if this economic model is viable. And Naftogaz, the Ukrainian uh, monopoly has been very active in uh, trying to to include these decarbonization plans. And to, to Ukraine's credit, it has been, um, again, very active in launching uh, corporations with the EU to, um, to match with the EU's Green Deal in particular. So... Ukraine, together with uh, World Bank, uh, Ukraine has announced uh, that it will launch its hydrogen uh, strategy this year. There's been already concrete uh, business projects together with Germany to launch hydrogen projects in Mariupol, which is southern city uh, bordering next to the Donbass region. Uh, there have been many reports including again a world bank uh, stating that ukraine has a huge potential in solar energy in wind offshore energy so the potential is there but the question is capital so european investments for that matter or american investments and technology because this is something ukraine doesn't have and it's very costly given that uh, you know the the limits of Ukraine's economy, whether it can actually get it. So the deal to me actually offers a good plan how to step up Ukraine's game in the decarbonization. Because Russia, as I said, is not just sitting idly, it's also preparing for these big changes for its own economy which will deprive the Russian economy from... 2 billion to almost 60 billion, depending on the scenario from various uh, uh, agencies uh, and consultancies. Uh, But this is something that the two countries can also compete against each other when it comes to hydrogen. So Ukraine can profit from deliveries of green hydrogen, which is produced from the renewables. Again, solar and uh, wind offshore is the key here. Russia can profit from blue hydrogen, which is produced from natural gas. So so what to me will see basically the same geopolitics as, as, it, as it is now, that the two countries will perhaps compete for access to the EU market. And again, Ukraine has been active in introducing very lavish... Uh, subsidies when it comes to solar power panels and um, whether the policy was successfully implemented as it's been basically acquired by oligarchs. And we can uh, question the the success of the story. But if we talk about the renewables, the launch of this policy, uh, this has been rather successful. Something that in Russia has been uh perceived with more resistance and uh opposition
0: yeah i feel like i'm i had a, a nietzschean moment there where you're saying this is we're gonna do all this again in 30 years it's just gonna be with hydrogen and it's gonna be the same dynamics a little eternal return of the same um last question before we let you go um we can't have a a podcast about anything these days and not talk about china and you you referred to china a little bit And about how russian gas sales to china have actually been disappointing i think for for moscow maybe they're going to pick up especially as the eu starts to phase out natural gas do you think that china factored into germany's decision-making process at all that at least some of what germany is trying to do here is to link russia closer to europe because germany sees a long-term future in which the eu is going to have to worry about china and balance against it Um, do you think that in general the eu is going to have to start shifting its thinking towards we have to protect against Russian aggression in the region to, hey, like if Russia and China team up, um, suddenly all these fears that we have about Russia get even more so because a Russia-China alliance is really bad if, if you're trying to prevent a hegemon in Eurasia. Does China factor in here at all or is, is that an empty concern? Is it too abstract and far away? Where, where do you situate that, that concern within this broader conversation? Yeah,
1: to me, those concerns um, have been mainly voiced from some American politicians or another country in the EU, and this is France. So Emmanuel Macron referred to this danger of two countries, Russia and China, aligning, and this won't be counter, uh, won't be productive for the EU. I haven't seen it, uh, this narrative in Germany. So the, to me, it's still like running parallel to this historical Uh, Cooperation, uh, trade uh, through change through trade narrative whether China has been... uh, Germany has its uh, problems with China on its own (laughs) when it comes to human rights and uh, other agreements. Uh, But there are concerns, as I said, voiced within the European Union by other uh, countries um, like France that this is the situation we're heading to. I'm rather skeptical towards this uh, because if we look at the, the relationship between Russia and China, they have problems on its own so by lumping them together we might uh, create this artificial alliance that is filled with a lot of tensions on its own and we could potentially use those disagreements uh instead of creating this artificial front that it's not there because china is very uh, cautious when it comes to cooperation economic cooperation with Russia, it still factors in Western sanctions. When it comes to Russia, Russia is very apprehensive of China's um, strategy towards Central Asia, towards dominance in the technological sphere. So there are a lot of uh, there is a lot of mistrust on its own. And by creating this false narr- or exaggerated narrative that might not serve any good to to create um, to create a proper policy towards these countries.
0: Amen to that. Uh, last question: Is Nord Stream Two operational by the end of the year? Putting you on the spot a little bit.
1: It's definitely finished in terms of physical construction. Yeah, but <laughs> is, is, is the gas flowing? No are, are,
0: are there are gas supplies being delivered by the end of the year?
1: I think 2022 is something that is perhaps more um, of a year that we should look into. Uh, Gazprom, as I said, is trying to create this pressure to speed up, to to clear all of the remaining roadblocks. But I think the European Commission and the position from Ukraine and Poland will not make it easy. And plus, we have. U.S. opposition in Congress and today we've heard there are new protests, there are new sanctions propositions. So the the battle is not done, that's for sure, and there are a lot of uh, regulatory uh, hindrances on its way to be operational. All
0: right. well thank you so much for coming on and explaining some of this to us and we'll have to have you back on as as further battles emerge, because as you said, the story is not over. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or in any episode, you can email us at info@perchperspectives.com. At I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in, and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media our twitter handle is at perch perspectives because we love a good pun Uh, we're also on linkedin under perch perspectives Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice a week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.